I'm glad to have the privilege to be up here this morning. These ties are interesting, to say the least. Um, I don't know how I feel about this, but uh, I guess we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm thankful to be a part of a congregation that cares so much about kids in my age bracket. I know that college is such a weird time for us, and I've realized over the past couple years that college is a time where kids get the opportunity to make decisions that will affect their entire life. I know lots of people, you know, they'll go to school and they'll, they'll take out loans and they'll be paying those loans for a good portion of their life and they'll go to school and they'll find a, a spouse that they, they like and they'll get married and, and have a good life. Sometimes you have consequences for those, like if you're Kim Wallace, you have to live with Paul Wallace for the rest of your life. But Paul said this morning that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't hurt his feelings, and so, uh, you know, we all got up here and we tell our jokes about Paul, but I have him as very own Paul Wallace tie. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> you can tell that to Mitchell. He bought them. There was a couple, and their names were Charles and Emma. Charles had a daughter, and her name was Annie. Charles and Annie are in the picture up there that you're, you're looking at on the PowerPoint. They brought her into the world on March 2nd of 1841. At the age of eight, she was diagnosed with scarlet fever. If you know anything about the 1800s, scarlet fever is very, very bad news. There wasn't much they could do about it. On April 23rd of 1851, she died. Eight years later, her father published the book, The Origin of Species by Natural Selection. The book was a, a smash hit. It flew right off the press, and many schools of science still use the book today to teach Darwinism. Scholars asked Charles Darwin if he had believed in a God. He said he did, but the event that stripped him of his faith was that his 10-year-old daughter Annie had passed away. He was quoted as saying, how can an all-loving God let a young girl that bright and happy leave this world? This isn't a new concept at all, this idea that if you go ask a good portion of unbelievers why they don't believe, it's usually because how can you serve a God that can let such bad things happen? This problem's been given a name, the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. And it hasn't been a around for, it has been around for a long time. It's not something new. This didn't come along with my generation or the one before mine. There's a man that was named Epicurus. If I can get the power, there we go. Epicurus lived in the third century. And his basic beliefs were that there are three separate ideas. Two of them can exist at the same time, but not all three. Those were that there's an all-powerful God there's an all-loving God, and that there is evil. 
He believed that either there's an all-powerful God, but he doesn't love you enough to take evil out of the world, or there is an all-loving God, but he's not powerful enough to take evil out of the world. There's a foundation called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. They have upwards of 20,000 members. Their basic belief is that if you want to know if there's a God, just walk into any children's hospital across America or across the world. Seeing all these kids that have been diagnosed with terrible illnesses, statistically they don't have long to live, and they're suffering even though they're innocent. They believe that that should prove to you that there is no God. And those arguments sound pretty compelling until you start putting them to the test. Does witnessing suffering prove that there is no God? One question that can't be answered by the unbelieving community is, why would someone donate their time to work for these children's hospitals and to help these children? If we were all by some blind chance, we all evolve from small cells and there's really no reason why we're here. Why would somebody donate their time to something that doesn't allow them to pass on their genetic material, which should be their purpose in life? C.S. Lewis was a man that, that worked through a lot of atheism in his life. He eventually came to Christ later. He wrote that he did not understand where this idea of just and unjust came from. It was not something that he had created, because then who could tell him what was right from wrong? Everyone knows what's right from wrong, but in this regard, atheism is far too simple. If you want to frame these philosophical principles in a syllogism, it would be something like this. If there is no God, there are no objective moral values. We see good and evil around us, therefore there is a God. But we can talk philosophy all day. That still doesn't change the fact that when you do walk into a children's hospital or you see evil in our world, it hurts us. On an emotional gut level, we don't like seeing people suffer and we don't like suffering. But it does not force us to the conclusion that there is no God. There was a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. He was a lawyer that lived in the Chicago area in the 1870s. He had a very successful career. He made a lot of money. And he decided that he needed to be more financially responsible. And so he decided to start investing in some real estate. Well, he bought some high-value real estate in Chicago. And if you know anything about Chicago in the 1870s, some of the most destructive fires ever swept the area at that time. A few years later, he, all of his real estate had been reduced to ash. His family had lost more financially than he thought could ever happen. 
And so he decided that he needed to get his family away for a while. They had planned to take a trip to England. He had some business come up at the last minute. So he sent his wife, Anna, and his four daughters on a ship towards England, and he was going to meet them a couple days later. In a tragic accident, as they were sailing across the ocean, the boat that his family was on was struck by a steamer. In under 12 minutes, the ship had sank, and 226 lives had been lost in the crash. His wife, Anna, was rescued and taken to South Wales, where she had written a telegram to him that contained only two words, saved alone. Horatio's four daughters had all died in the crash, and he immediately boarded his own ship to sail to meet his wife. As he sat there on that ship, he looked out over the water where all four of his daughters had just died, and he wrote these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I know that this church sings this song quite often, and we sing it well, but I think that it's important to know the place that the author was in whenever he was saying that these things were well with his soul. This emotional problem with suffering that we have can come about a lot when we don't know the point of our lives. We kind of think of God as like an owner, and we are his pet. You know, I went to the Fitz's house, and Ella's got this new guinea pig, and she loves that thing. She feeds him. She waters him, lets him play around. She'll take him out every once in a while, let him do something fun. But then we think of ourselves in that role. We think God is our owner. We think he's going to feed us, water us, let us out of our cage every once in a while to do something fun, let us run on our wheel and do whatever we want. And then when that doesn't happen, whenever something goes wrong, we feel like we have the right to look at God and say, I thought we had a deal here. I thought we had a mutual agreement that you were going to give me everything I want and I'm going to be happy for my whole life and be comfortable. The point of our life is not to live comfortably until we get old and pass away painlessly. Let me give you an example of missing the point. If you go into any older woman's house, you'll probably see this item laying maybe on their kitchen table or on the bar somewhere. And immediately you look at the picture and you're like, well, that's some of the best fruit I've ever seen. I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, those bananas are as yellow as anything I've ever seen. And the crazy part is, if you came back a year later, they'd be just as yellow as they are in that picture. They don't age. They don't have any blemishes. But if you pick up the banana and you try to take a bite out of it, you're going to have a rude awakening because it's made of styrofoam. And then if you go to the owner of the house and you say, well, this is the worst tasting fruit ever. 
they're going to say, well, the point of it wasn't to eat it. The point of it was for it to be decoration. Well, what is the point then? If the point is not for us to live comfortably forever, then what is it? In Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes that, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 13, Peter says, Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the same sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Peter says you shouldn't be surprised whenever you face some tribulations in your life. You shouldn't be surprised when you suffer, but you should count that joy because now you can say that you had something in common with Christ and his life on earth. Skeptics will try to take away the only thing of meaning that we can get out of our trials. And that is that they give our life meaning. If you look at scripture, you look at all these biblical characters. For example, Paul. If you know anything about Paul, you know that he was flogged, he was beaten, he was locked away in prison, and then he was eventually killed by King Nero. All of those things he experienced during his life mostly happened multiple times. This was a very often occurrence that he was brutally beaten and persecuted. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 16, he writes, Therefore do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. One of the things I love about that passage the most is in verse 17, he says, for our light and momentary affliction. If you know anything about Paul and what I just told you about him, to me, that's the furthest thing from a light affliction that I've ever heard. He didn't have a comfortable life by any means. If you look at another example like Joseph, Joseph had some brothers that didn't like him very much because he was the favorite of his father's. His father gave him this cool coat as a token of his gratitude and then his brothers didn't like that and so they threw him in a pit and then they sold him into slavery. So he's working as a slave. Finally he gets into a decent situation with a man named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife ends up telling Potiphar that David had been trying to sleep with her and so Potiphar throws him in jail again. And so if you stop the story there it's not a very good ending. You would say Joseph had a pretty bad life. We studied Lazarus last week in Bible class. In John eleven thirty five, 35, we have the verse that Jesus wept. 
And that shows a lot of the human aspect of Jesus. And leading up to that, Jesus was late to get to where Lazarus was being buried and where he was sick. Mary and Martha are distraught because Lazarus is dead and Jesus could have healed him before he died. And then we know that Jesus gets there and he's still sad that his friend had died. If you stop that story there, it's not a very good ending either. Either one, if you take it where they are suffering, it's not a very good ending. Then if you keep reading the story of Joseph, we know that he came out of prison to become the right hand of Pharaoh and rule over Egypt. And then Joseph's brothers who already sold him into slavery come back and ask him for food in a famine. And we know exactly what Jesus went on to do as well at the end of his life. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, says, Count it all joy whenever we face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I find that word joy interesting. We have this joy and happiness seem pretty close to us, but biblically, they're used a lot differently. Joy is more of a constant abundance of reassurance in what God has in store for us. And happiness is kind of this fleeting, something good happened to me, so I'm happy. To give you an example of the difference, this would be like if I woke up on my birthday and my roommates had just decided that they wanted to make me a huge breakfast. If you know my roommates, first of all, they don't cook. Second of all, they would not cook for me. So that's a big deal. And so I eat my big old breakfast and then I can go down to the parking lot in my apartment building and my parents are out there and they've got this brand new red shiny Corvette for me. And I said, well, it's your birthday. We thought you want a new car. And I said, well, of course I want a new car, but I didn't ask for it because I didn't think I'd get it. But I got it anyways. And so I head on to class in my brand new car and I get in there and Coach Bellotto comes in there and he says, our Arkansas State basketball team is a little short-handed tonight. We've had some guys get injured. We're playing the University of North Carolina that night. That's the biggest game they've ever played. And so I raise my hand and I say, well, I'll play. I'm feeling pretty good today. And so I go practice, I shoot around, and I get out on the court at game time, and I put on the best performance that college basketball has ever seen. Through the first three quarters, I'm 20 for 22 from the three-point line. Steph Curry's watching the game, wishing he could shoot like me. And by the fourth quarter, there's one second left on the clock, and I've got 60 points, but somehow, conveniently, we're still down by one. So, of course, Coach Bellotto calls a timeout, and he says, well, you're definitely taking the last shot. So we run the inbounds play. I catch the ball, throw it behind my back, full court, nothing but net. It's the best game winner that college basketball has ever seen. So after the basketball game, the chancellor comes up to me and they say, we've never seen anything like that. We're going to go ahead and give you a doctorate degree in honor of that fantastic game. 
So now I've never got to go back to school again. And then I go home, and the NBA scouts are on the phone wanting me to come work out for their teams, and it looks like my life's pretty set at that point. I go to the fridge, and I eat my leftovers from breakfast, and then I go to bed. Well, the next morning, I wake up, and I had slept wrong, and I got a crick in my neck. I'm sore from the game. The day before, I roll out of bed, my head on the nightstand, and my head's bleeding, and all those leftovers I ate right before bed, they're not sitting with me well, so now I'm puking my guts out in the toilet while I'm bleeding. So I head out the door, and I fall down the stairs in my apartment building, break both my legs, crawl to my car, get in, go to drive to school, head-on collision with a semi. My brand new car's totaled. I'm in the hospital. They tell me I'll never play basketball again. Am I happy that day? I say I was pretty happy on the first day, but I'm not happy the second. I give you that example because happiness can be fleeting, but I can have joy in both. The beauty of that is that God does not care if I make a NBA draft. He doesn't care if I drop 60. He doesn't care that I total my car. None of that matters to him. There's a statue that was built in Enterprise, Alabama. Basically what it is is this woman, and she's got an agricultural pest called the ball weevil. It's a little beetle with sharp fangs and it'll get inside of these cotton bowls and just destroy them. And so basically what had happened is Enterprise Alabama is a huge mecca of cotton at that time. So they're growing tons of cotton and these boll weevils come up from Mexico and destroy the entire economy. After a year or two, they realize that there's no way they're ever going to be able to grow cotton again. But then somebody has the bright idea that maybe we should switch it up. Maybe we should grow peanuts. They start growing peanuts and they, they realize that there's a big demand for them. Their profit margins are higher than ever. They're selling more than ever. And so they built this statue to thank the ball weevil for destroying their economy so that they would pivot to something else. Can God take our struggles and if we allow him, shape us into something better than we were before? I want to go back to Hebrews 5-7 that we just read a moment ago. We're familiar with the story of Jesus in the garden that he was so distraught about what he knew was about to happen. He knew that he was about to have one of the most painful deaths that a man could have. And so he's crying, he's sweating blood, and he's yelling at his father to let this cup pass from him. The interesting thing about this verse is that we see that in verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverent submission. I think many times when we're in the midst of struggles, we think that when we pray and talk to God, he's just not listening. He wants this to happen, and so he doesn't really care what we have to say about it. I find this story interesting because now we know that Jesus was fully aware about what was about to happen. So was God. Jesus' request for it not to happen, he was heard. But then you keep reading in verse 8, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I see the progression of Jesus did not want this to happen. God had to have it happen for him to be the source of our eternal salvation. Today, I know that there's nobody in here that hasn't suffered at all. That's just not something that a, a person can do. When you're wondering where God is when you are suffering, look at Jesus' situation. He was heard. My encouragement to you is to use your suffering to let God use you. I know there's many in here that are going through something right now and you think that this could be the end, this is the straw that broke the camel's back, this is it. But I encourage you to look at these examples and look at how lives can be transformed through suffering. When you read the story and you get up to the part where they start to suffer, and maybe that's you, if you end it there, it seems pretty bad. But if you get through that and you allow God to shape and mold you, your suffering better. This morning, if you need prayers from the church, if you'd like to be baptized, or if you need anything else, we encourage you to come as we stand and while we sing.